This episode is brought to you by Klaviyo. Did you know that top brands drive 50% of their e-commerce revenue with Klaviyo? Consolidate your channels, including email, SMS, mobile push, and reviews, and centralize and use data from across your tech stack to grow your business and revenue faster and more efficiently than ever. Power smarter digital relationships with the platform built for e-commerce. To learn more, head to klaviyo.com glossy. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash glossy. Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter, Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. Hello, Jill. Hello, Danny. Good to be on with you. And um, we have a very fun episode this week. We are finally digging into our mailbag. So in this episode, we're going to be answering some questions from our lovely listeners um, who all submitted really smart questions. Um, I picked out a few that I thought were interesting, and we'll just go through and share some of our thoughts. And if it ties into anything in the news, too, we can bring that up. But for the most part, we're just going to kind of see what you guys want to hear from us, and we'll we'll share our thoughts. <laughs> Giving the people what they want. Yes. Let's start with our first question. This comes to us from Lauren Stevens, who is the CEO of the fashion brand, Dudley Stevens. She starts with a bunch of nice compliments about the Glossy Podcast. Thank you, Lauren. She says, I'd love to know your and Jill's thoughts on M&A and bankruptcy filings in retail in the next two to five years. There are so, so many DTC brands nowadays, I think largely due to how easy Shopify has made starting a brand. I think in this new post-COVID era, we're going to see a lot of M&A activity or even more bankruptcy filings in the next two to five years. I just wonder who in the retail industry in the U.S. will be the one buying and consolidating. I think M&A will start to outweigh VC money activity in the retail sector in the coming years, and it will be what we're talking about versus how much investment money a brand has raised. Are those crazy VC fundraising days over? Great question, Lauren. So I'll, I'll go. I have a really long answer to this, but I'll just do part of it and then Take I'll it let away, you jump Danny. in. Take it away, Danny. I want to know. I'll let you jump in. So there's a, I feel like there's a couple questions in here, and I'm going to start with the last one, which is, are the days of crazy VC fundraising over? Um, I think that's completely true, and we've talked about that on the podcast before. Um, I just had a conversation last week with Chris Gove from Percival about the fundraising landscape. They're doing crowdfunding instead of going to VCs for the dual reasons that VC money is not as easy to come by as it used to be. It's definitely drying up. Um, interest rates are higher, which means the VCs want to see returns ASAP, which means they're stingier about the money that they give out. For a long time, that was not the case. They were just throwing bags of money at anybody with like a PowerPoint. Um, the other reason is he said that the VCs that he's talked to, a lot of times you get the sense that the people there don't even really understand what industry or what product they're potentially investing in. Like they just see it as numbers. And he was kind of disillusioned with that. And I've heard similar things from other fashion brands. So I think that's definitely the case that VC money is not as easy to come by and maybe not even as desirable anymore. But I think Lauren raises a good point here that even though the funding has dried up, things like Shopify have made it a lot easier and a lot cheaper for a brand to get up and running. So even though there's less money to go around in funding, you might need less money to actually start the brand. Um, but then once you do, everything else is still really expensive, like marketing through meta and stuff. So I think it's like really easy to get a brand going, then you start, and then you immediately run into the brick wall of like all the other costs that are not as cheap as those like initial things, um, and then you go bankrupt. So to answer that question, yes, I do think there's going to be a lot more bankruptcies. Um, 
I'll stop there. I've got more to say, but I, I don't want to monopolize. What, what do you think, Joe? No, say it all. I'm with you. There are several. First of all, hi, Lauren. I do know Lauren. Thanks for the question. I'm with you. Not only Shopify, but also social media allowing a brand to get on people's radar. Um, no retailer approval needed. Throw it out there. If there's a market for your product, somebody's going to find it. Um, and of course, there's the whole digital advertising up, I don't know. It's it's changed. So um, mm -hmm. digital advertising, allowing brands to buy cu customers and drive up their revenue. It's little regard for profitability, which is what investors want to see today. Um, some will argue the brands that did that and built a business around high revenue, no no um, profitability. Is that a real company? Like, I don't know. <laughs> so what is that? Um, so fundra fundraising is not as free-flowing as it once was to say the least. I do think that um, brands that saw success in DTC's heyday will, some will fall off, those that were too reliant on VC funding and digital advertising. But those that, that built a strong brand, a brand with strong products, they prioritize, prioritize profitability. Um, I think they're going to thrive in this, I guess, post-pandemic era, whatever we're going into. They have to have proven their value for VCs to be interested or investors to be interested these days. We saw a lot of activity over the last, I would say, two weeks um, with ooh, maybe three um, in the fashion space with uh, Rag and Bone acquired by Guess, which is interesting. Also, Rowing Blazers acquired by fashion investment firm Birch Creative Capital, um, which has also an investor in Tory Burch and Stodd. Um, that's kind of trending, these fund managers, investment firms acquiring these fashion brands. Um, I think it was late last year that, I think maybe you wrote about it, but um, I know Draper James was acquired by a fund manager named um, Consortium Growth Partners. So I think that those that are investing, I, I do think that we'll see uh, M&A activity, but I also think it will be with the brands that have proven their value. The, the brands that I mentioned are very pretty well established. Investors really value community. And so we know that. So a lot of brands are working on building their community. It's almost safeguarding. And the question about who's going to scoop up these brands also, I mean, there's always authentic brands group. Yeah, I was um, going to mention them. Yes, you've talked to them a lot. What, what's your take? How what are, are they still as active as they were maybe a year ago? I think they've slowed down. They definitely had a, a period where there was, it felt like a new ABG acquisition every single week. Um, it's not, it, they've, they've slowed down a lot, but I think you're right that, you know, as we're talking about, there will, it's easier for brands to get off the ground. We're going to, that means we'll see a lot more brands existing. And then the ones that are not successful or the ones who aren't able to be profitable quickly will, um, you know, go bankrupt. But then the ones that kind of break through will just get acquired or scooped up. I do think that there's there's an interesting thing in the tech industry and it's like startup culture has created the idea of like the exit where you start a company and literally you start it just hoping that it'll get bought by some other larger company you take the payout and then you, whatever happens to that company you started after that is like not your problem anymore. That's very common in tech. I do think that in fashion, purely anecdotal, but a lot of the people that I talk to in, in like founders and executives, I think a lot of them have a little bit more sympathetic attachment to their uh, 
their creations and don't necessarily want to just hand it off to who, like the first person who comes calling with a bunch of money. Um, there's certainly founders in any industry, I think, who would do that. But a lot of the people I know are very passionate about the brands that they create, even if they stay small or if they blow up and get big and they don't want to just, you know, pawn it off as soon as possible. So I do think that makes it a, a little bit of a different industry than like tech, for example, where if you start a company and you just do one, you specialize in one tiny little behind the scenes uh, software thing, and then you get bought by Microsoft so that they can integrate that into their, like, you might not be that sentimental about, you know, some totally like not even cu customer facing company that you started at all. But in fashion, I think a lot of people are sentimentally attached to, you know, the brands that they create. And, and so I think there's a little bit less of an inclination. And so that doesn't mean stuff doesn't get acquired, but it's just that when it does, it might be something that's maybe more of a, a natural fit or something, you know, one fashion brand acquiring another, joining some larger family or something like that. Or the founder can stay on board, which TBD, how long that lasts when that happens. But I'm with you. Uh, there are two different sides to it where like founders, they've been through it. Like we've had a rough couple of years. I'm sure they're tired. Some of them are looking for an out. They may be, may be more open to selling. Um, but then also at the same time, it's almost like they've come this far. And you mentioned they're like, there are other options, like they're crowdsourcing. Maybe they're trying sexier things with, um, in terms of innovation and collaborations to kind of, I think we'll be seeing a lot of, um, I don't know, noise coming out of brands that are really um, maybe struggling a bit um, and want to make a go of it. And they're not still not considering funding. They don't see um, that as an option for them. Um, VCs, like you said, less willing to make bets. But I think at this point, like everything's a bet. <laughs> Basically, mm -hmm. everything's so up in the air and wild. Um, and But it's become more acceptable from investors and by brands to um, just lean into slow growth. It's not about rapid growth. Um, kind of just keep plugging away with the status quo. And if you're not going backwards, you're going forwards. And that's a great thing. As for like the big conglomerates scooping up brands, I think we'll, we'll still see that, but it has to be a brand that brings something fresh to the company. We saw um, Unilever um, in acquiring K18 last year. Um, and then at the same time, we know the company was um, going big on the concept of bond building hair care. So they wanted to bring in a leader, an expert in the space to kind of lead the charge is, is how it read to me. So um, there are various scenarios where it would make sense. Um, but I'm with Lauren. I think we're, I, anyway, I think we're going to see new activity. I think it will be different activity than we've seen in, in the last couple of years. I completely agree. And Lauren, this was a great question. So thank you for submitting it. Our next question comes from Becca Marie, who is the founder and CEO of Artist Issues and is a longtime listener of the podcast. My question is in regards to marketing campaigns. So what good marketing campaigns over the years surprised you in their performance? And then on the flip side, what marketing campaigns you expected to do well that ended up flopping in the long term. And this can be from any brand in any decade. Uh, thank you both so much and uh, love your podcast. What do you think, Jill? I'll let you go first since I started the last one. <gasps> Should we do um, the one that surprised and the one that flopped? Like separate them. Let's first do the one that surprised. I'll go, then okay. you go. <laughs> we have a plan. Okay, okay. okay. I thought about this 
And I would just say like one that really swept the nation, I would say it went viral, um, was, and you're going to be like, well, I wasn't surprised because you're a fan. But anyway, Jeremy Allen White for Calvin Klein. This just happened in early January. It feels like it happened ages ago. Time is weird these days. But I would just say, I mean, cute boy in his underwear. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. They've done the same ad with everyone. Yeah. Sean Mendez had some excitement around his Calvin Klein ad. I mean, Kendall Jenner's done it, but they've been doing the same type of ad- advertising since Marky Mark and Kate Moss. And and honestly, like, you know, maybe it's like everybody was surprised that Jeremy Allen White is so good looking in his underwear. <laughs> I don't think of him as like a heartthrob, like necessarily, but now I know he's like women are swooning. So it definitely was successful. But to me, it was a surprise just because it wasn't anything new. Um, and yeah. I was less surprised than with um, with Skims. Like that also, their ad when they launched men's underwear, it also, um, I would say, went viral. But we've talked often about um, the fact that what resonates with men shoppers isn't style influencers. Um it's more so like the the athletes. That's what men want to see. And yeah. um, anyway, it was timely and Skims is known for all of this. So anyway, I would just say Calvin Klein. How about you? Well, I, I want to say the Calvin Klein one with Jeremy Allen White, I thought same as you. It was I was surprised at how huge that was because it's the same as all their other ads. They get like hot guys to wear their underwear literally all the time. I think the part of the reason that one took off is because it was like the timing was so good. It was right when the second season of The Bear had just come out, um, you know, which was great, by the way, if you haven't watched it, both seasons are really excellent. And it's like, he was riding the, the like, it came out right at the crest of that wave, kind of. Um, he's also in that movie, The Iron Claw, which was coming out around the same time, which I haven't seen, but I, I've heard is good. So, you know, if you get a big celebrity to be in your campaign, that's always gonna be good. But I think sometimes the timing is most important and you can't always control that. Like they probably, I don't know when they shot that or how long a Calvin Klein ad takes from like conception to being out in the world. But I'm sure if it takes even longer than two weeks, it's it's hard to predict what's going to be in the zeitgeist the moment it hits. And I think that just the timing worked great. There's a lot of ads yeah. that are like that where they are huge and they have a huge impact, but it's not so much that the content of the ad was like so unique. It was more that it just came at just the right time and like yes. kind of got in front of just the right people who spread it in just the right ways. You know, that's my yeah. take on the Calvin and it's Klein not thing. necessarily brand driven. Like maybe it was just a coinky dink. Like I'm sure they knew some of the pro- projects he was working on, but I'm sure they like kind of the stars aligned. And it, anyway, it just so happened. It's kind of how I think it went down. Yeah. Um, I was going to say one that I liked recently, and it's funny because it's a type of thing that I normally don't like. So I was going to say, I am really not a fan of any ad campaign that's like humor driven because I find humor is very subjective. And when it's like not funny, the whole thing just like doesn't work for me. And particularly as a writer, I get annoyed when like something is I see an ad or something and it's written very poorly and I'm like, that person probably got paid so much to write that dumb, not funny ad. Um, but I got, I wrote about this at New York Fashion Week. There's a company, there's an agency called Uncommon Creative Studio and at New York Fashion Week, I just got this pitch that was, it was so mysterious and it was like, do you like rats? We do too, introducing rat boot or something. And that was it. And there was no, 
like further information and it kind of intrigued me. And then when it came out was that it was a boot with like a cage at the bottom with like a fake rat inside. An insane product and honestly kind of like a jokey, gimmicky kind of thing, but it was so unexpected and weird and also kind of coy about what exactly it even was at first that just, I don't know, that that got me intrigued. I also was looking at it as a journalist though, like looking for something to write about. So I don't know as a consumer if it would have gotten me as much, but like I took a screenshot of that email and sent it to a bunch of my friends because I was like, look at this weird email I got. And so I don't know, that that worked on me. And But I think that's a risky move to do something that's jokey and kind of intentionally dumb. I talked to the the guy who was sort of behind it, and he said it was the stupidest like idea he'd ever brought to his boss. But it went viral, and it was successful for them. Yeah, yeah, they got tons and tons of impressions. A bunch of influencers wore it and stuff. And um, yeah, well, no, not a bunch of influencers. One influencer wore it, but they were photographed a bunch of times yeah. by different people. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It's like maybe not the most impactful, but I thought it was like very memorable because it was just weird and funny. And I don't know. A lot of times, campaigns like that don't really kind of work for me, but that one did. Yes. Which campaign did you think was a flop or that you were surprised that it flopped? I don't have a specific one. Skip skip me and go back to you because I (laughs) just have like general ideas about ad stuff. But yeah. Mine's not super specific, but I do think that um, Sarah Sprokefiner on our team has talked a lot about um, the fact that influencers or just social people who engage on social media, um, mainly TikTok, have become kind of marketing experts or they think of themselves as marketing experts or they're interested in marketing and strategy and a certain demo is. But what flopped and it was surprising to me was, um, well, influencer trips in general, first of all, because they're getting so much, Mm. they're getting a lot of backlash. I mean, Tarte got for the Dubai trip, got backlash for a variety of reasons, but that was one where the backlash was surrounding the fact that they spent so much money on this influencer trip and that it was reading as like tone deaf and we're in a recession. Like, meanwhile, every luxury fashion brand is putting out some glamorous campaign. Um, and if they they know more because there's more transparency around these trips and influencers are posting left and right. But at the same time, they're they're not questioning like, do brands always spend? <laughs> we know the amount of money that brands are spending on campaigns and marketing, and it's almost it's, I wouldn't say it's a drop in the bucket, but it's very comparable mm-hmm. to what they do, like nonstop. So um, the backlash around the spending and the tone deaf um, that was surprising to me. Um, and I mean, I'm still hearing about influencer trips. I'm getting <laughs> invited to press trips. Um, I. I I, it's still happening. So anyway, it, it, there's so much backlash around Tarte that was surprising to yeah. me. Yeah, and actually, so you reminded me what I was going to say. I, I feel like you you really don't want your ad campaign to have backlash. I feel like backlash is like not, <laughs> you don't want to like have a controversy section on your Wikipedia page. One that I'm thinking about is not like a specific ad, but just across the board. I feel like so much NFT and metaverse stuff was pitched like, I, I I like was kind of skeptical of the product initially, but also I just think a lot of it was pitched kind of even with the brand not really understanding what they were even pitching. It's like this brand is doing we're doing NFTs. This is the future of the brand and like had a whole thing. But it's like, but what? But how? You know, it felt like very vague. And so I feel like a lot of brands kind of just jumped into that kind of stuff or they're like, we have a, a 
section in the metaverse where you can come look at our brand and it's just like a blurry like JPEG that you can walk around and look at. And it's just like, this feels not thought through all the way. Yes. Um, and then like, not only was there people who are kind of virulently anti-crypto stuff who were like, did ha- like, you know, there was backlash, but also I think a lot of other people were just kind of indifferent to that stuff. So um, I don't know, some of those campaigns and the way they were pitched, I was like, it felt very just, everyone else is doing it. So here we're also doing some sort of metaverse thing. And I don't totally. think that's a good way to do anything for your brand. Like you don't want to just do something that it's like the the customer doesn't understand. And it's clear that you maybe don't even understand what <laughs> yes. it is you're doing, you know? So I don't think that's a good look. Agree. And it's a flop because they're probably no longer doing it. I don't know. Yeah. Because they're like abandoned. Totally. Um, and then also I was going to say, I used to I, when I was younger, I subscribed to a bunch of print magazines. I always had GQ, GQ growing up and I loved looking through the ads in, in there. And something I liked was all the like beautiful photography. You know, the last couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about how people really respond well to kind of unpolished stuff like TikTok videos that are just filmed in the warehouse of the product as opposed to like some glossy photo shoot or something. But I personally still really like I'm a camera person and I like I don't know I I really like good product photography or good lookbooks and catalogs and stuff like that so I I don't know I'm not necessarily saying that's the most effective or most efficient but just purely as a as a viewer I really like that kind of stuff so like old Comme des Garçons like print ads from the 90s were really cool Gap had a really cool one I forget what decade this was, maybe the 80s. That was for their khakis. And it was just all these really beautiful photographs of different famous people just wearing Gap khakis and like doing yes. stuff. It just, I don't know. It was really, really cool and like helped sell the vibe of the product. And I think a really good campaign can do that, you know? Yeah. And even, I mean, it was polished, but I mean, they kind of struck the right balance, I think, between um, kind of real, just how the people were kind of hanging out. It was relatable, but also aspirational. Like you want to be them um, and it Mm -hmm. didn't look, yeah, unattainable. Yeah, for sure. Um, Cool. Okay. Let's move on to our last question. This one comes from Carolina Ross Montenegro. Um, She says, I'm currently trying to understand how the pandemic-influenced surge in consumption propelled by the rise of fashion TikTok altered consumer behavior around fashion and the overall economy. And I would like to know what your opinion is on that currently. I see that TikTok is highly influential on fashion, but I wanted to hear from an expert. Thank you, Carolina, for deeming us experts. (laughs) I don't (laughs) always feel like it, but we do spend a lot of time reading and talking and writing about fashion. So I hope we've got something valuable to say here. But I think the, for me, um, one of the big ways that TikTok, and I'll use TikTok as sort of a stand-in for the whole kind of new wave of algorithmified like social networks, but um, the surge in consumption accelerated that trend we talked about earlier of companies like Shopify growing a lot because people are consuming more, so there's more demand, and then people want to create brands. Shopify shows up and is like, it takes five seconds to get a, a store up and running. So that's a big effect. And then the the other biggest effect to me is it has made the trend cycle so ridiculously fast. It is impossible to keep up. Even as fashion journalists like you and me, Joe, I, I miss entire like movements of a uh, aesthetics. There's plaza core and whimsa goth and like all these aesthetics that I'm like, 
it was like that was a huge thing from Tuesday to Friday, and then it was over. You know, it's and is Mob and Wife th- still in effect? I feel like it might be Mob. I wife. hope so, but I I don't know, and I feel like it's made it's introduced a lot of chaos into the industry. I feel like fashion in previous decades used to be very kind of structured, where stuff the trend would be set on the runway and and like a season beforehand by Dior or whoever, and then it would come out and then it would kind of slowly filter out and then it would be copied by other brands and then it would make its way to the department stores and stuff. You know, it was like this this kind of regimented, the seasons were very um, strictly defined and everything. And then now stuff is it moves so fast where it's like some random TikTok video, the algorithm decides to make it mega viral. It gets 10 billion views. Everyone scrambles to like copy whatever weird aesthetic is is uh, talked about in that video. And then it just, you know what I mean? It does, it goes so fast. And maybe by the time you you even hear about something, it's too late. It's over. It's it's too late to try to get in on it. It's like we were saying with the Jeremy Allen White thing, like the timing is everything. But when stuff moves really fast, it's like, it takes time to make a product, a design and and produce it and sell it. It takes time even to make an ad campaign. And so I find it's, it seems like it's a lot more luck-based it's yeah. just you just try things and you hope that you kind of coincide with whatever is like viral at that moment. So that's one big thing that I observe and have heard from people. Yeah. And she's talking about the surging consumption. Like, is it propelled by fashion TikTok? Like I would argue during the pandemic, namely, I would argue that also like there are other factors, the stimulus checks, the boredom, even necessity, like the wardrobe that you wore to work no longer works from home. And now even the wardrobe you once wore to work doesn't really work. Like nobody's wearing heels. So I think that um, people are spending out of necessity for one. And on the luxury, in the luxury sector, um, we know the stock market is all over the place. So people are spending on fashion as a safe investment. And on the entire other end of the spectrum, there's more information out there. So people are um, more hip to the idea of dupes and um, available cheap fashion, for better or worse, that they can um, invest in (laughs) um, and scoop up um, that looks good and influencers are talking about it. So uh, a variety of reasons why people are spending and we're starting to see that slow down, obviously, as um, I think we're everyone is realizing that the state of the economy isn't getting much, much better in a very fast manner. So we've got a ways to go. Yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right. Um, the other thing I think is interesting about TikTok is uh, it's like it is a social network that kind of it was the first, maybe not the very first, but I feel like the first biggest one to kind of de-emphasize the social element where you're not really there to talk to your friends or post things for people you know to see. It's like you're there to like view content as a like consumer. And it's trained people to just like be, you know, to watch a ton of stuff and to kind of like, I don't know, I think a lot of people participate with TikTok uh, purely as an audience and like don't post at all. And like, I don't think it's, even Instagram is quite that level. Like a lot of normal people I know post on Instagram and I know very few people in real life who post on TikTok, even if they use it a ton. You know what I mean? Agree. I'm one of those lurkers. <laughs> yeah, me too. I've never I've never posted a TikTok. But I don't, I don't know exactly what that does. But I mean, you know, in terms of like the industry and the economy and consumption, 
but in terms of like consumption in terms of buying stuff, but in terms of viewing content, I definitely think it's trained people to consume more content than ever, you know, especially because they're so short and you can just watch 5,000 videos in a row. And then now TikTok is monetizing that through TikTok shop, which we've talked about has kind of made the experience a little bit worse because now everything is an ad. It used to be like, you'd be watching funny stuff and then there's ads kind of interspersed, but now it's like everything is an ad, even the regular videos. So I don't know. I don't use it that much personally, um, but it seems like that's kind of where it's heading. Yeah, you're right. I was just going to add that the TikTok shop is set to kind of change everything. And speaking of consumption, like some people are shopping, some people when they see the word shop, they're scrolling. So um, yeah, it's kind of tarnishing the whole experience and TBD of where it lands. Excited to see. And then one final thing I'll say just on the note of like the trend cycle being really fast and not being able to capitalize on stuff. I, I kind of think that's a good thing in in some ways because a few a few designers that I've talked to recently have said it's a little bit freeing because it's so impossible to try to chase a trend that they can just like ignore it basically. And they'll just, they're like, we'll just do whatever we're going to do. And we hope that it happens to line up with like whatever the industry is kind of into at the moment. And I think that's good. I think when it's a little bit slower, you still have the the idea that, oh, maybe we can respond to something quick enough to kind of latch onto it. But if it's so fast, it's like, there's no point. This is going to be over by tomorrow. There's no way we can kind of like capitalize on it. So I don't know. I I can see that being freeing for for some designers to just kind of be able to step back from trying to, you know, follow those trends. Stop chasing trends. Absolutely. Cool. Well, that's all the questions I wanted to get through. Thank you again to our listeners for submitting so many good questions. Um, I feel like this led to some really good, interesting discussions. And a lot of this stuff, I think, is validating because it's things we've talked about uh, internally in the Glossy Newsroom, and it touches on stories we're planning. I'm planning to write a story around mergers and acquisitions already. Um, A couple of, like, I feel like we are all you know, these are all things that the Glossy team has been talking about internally, too. So good to know that our listeners are on the same page. I was just going to say that. We're in sync. We are in sync. So that's all the time we have this week. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to this, because that helps us out so much. I'll also say, we I don't know when we're going to do our next mailbag episode, but if you want to keep sending in questions, feel free to do so. And if we get some more good ones that we want to talk about, maybe we'll do another episode like this in the future. Um And don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because you'll hear interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday and we can review episodes every Friday. Jill, who's our next guest on the Wednesday episode? It's a great episode. Um, We recorded live at the ETEL West uh, Summit in Palm Springs, Palm Springs over the week. Nice. Yeah, it's Katie Reeves, Managing Director of H&M Group's Cost brand in North America. And uh, yeah, she was very open and honest about all that they're doing um, in terms of balancing e-commerce and retail. Anyway, we go deep. And you just got back from retail, right? So this is this is a fresh episode. This was just recorded. This was just recorded. And I just got back. And yes, I am struggling, y'all. <laughs> but we did it. <laughs> We did it. All right. Well, thank you, Jill. And thank you to all of you for listening. 